Welcome to the Future Champions Podcast. I'm your host, Stuart Taylor, and our next guest is Ron Smith. When it comes to football, Ron Smith is the guy. He was the head of the Australian Institute of Sport Football Division. He also was a scout for the Nike Football Chances Program, where he scouted and identified Tom Rogic, who now plays for Celtic. He runs the Football Centre website and is known by many as the professor of football. He is our guest on the Future Champions podcast today. So here he is, Ron Smith. So Ron, your experience with the Australian Institute of Sport is quite significant. Can you talk about that from a football perspective? Well, having left the program now for quite a long time and looking back, I can see why it was so effective. And there are several reasons for that. The first one was that we had as many of the best players we could find in the country all training together. Um, and I'm a believer in that. Gerard Houllier told me when I visited Liverpool um, uh, over 10 years ago now, we discussed the Clairefontaine system that he set up. He said, you have to have the best with the best. That was his belief in the best facilities with the best coaches. Um, and I, I think having one constant message that you trust over a period of 12 to 24 months is a very efficient way of training players. So they don't have too many inputs from different people. They're getting a clear message. And our focus was about trying to improve the individual. Um, it, it wasn't about, um, the priority wasn't about systems of play because we taught them how to play in any system of play during that period because they had to be adaptable. If you've got young players with talent, they're going to be attracted by people outside the organisation that I was working in. And so if, if a coach rang me and said, Ronnie, have you got anyone leaving at the end of the year who could probably start out playing as a fullback, but he's really a centre-back because I need somebody the year after, but I could do with somebody who could play in both or someone who could play as a holding midfield player and as a centre-back and things like that. Um, so our, our policy was to try and improve individuals technically, physically, mentally, and tactically so that they could fit into any system of play. They would feel reasonably comfortable if a coach said, have you played with a back three? I used to play with the diamond in midfield, et cetera, et cetera. So we tried to expose the, the, the players to all of those sorts of systems over that two year period. And to be honest, um, and I've said this, and I'll say this quite publicly, uh, if, if you can't get players to adapt to a, what you might say a new system <laughs> or a, a change of style in, say, three or four weeks, then there's either a problem with you or a problem with the players. Because I've done it in short spaces of time. We've gone from playing with a back four to three at the back or a flat four in midfield to a diamond and whatnot. And the key for me is that if you teach behaviours to players, 
it doesn't matter what system of play you have. What age group were you working with in the AIS? 16 to 17. And how many people would be part of that program? We had 18 scholarships, including two goalkeepers. So 16 outfield players. And the other thing is when you're, when you're playing, you know, we used to aim for 50 games a year for the squad. And our policy then was if, you know, like in a competition game or whatever, if you don't start this match, you start the next one and the other players then have to fill in. So you, get, you don't get to play in your position every week because we don't have 22 players. You know, when you think about it, you've, you've only got six. So there's four players got to play again and then in different positions if there's a conflict. It doesn't always work out um, smoothly because of the number of players that you have to make up a squad. And sometimes I would offer players a scholarship on the basis that I was going to play them in a different position than the one they were used to because I thought they had certain qualities. For example, um, fairly tall, good midfield players. I, I would sometimes say, look, I'll offer you a scholarship as long as you agree to play predominantly as a centre-back. If you don't want to do that, then don't accept the scholarship. But, you know, I see you potentially long-term as being a centre-back or someone who can play in both positions because of the qualities that you've got. Did that, did that build more resilient players? It built more adaptable players. <laughs> Um, and also, when you look at the way football is played and has been for some time now, being able to play at any given moment in the game in a different position is a great attribute. So if I'm a midfield player and I can drop in and play as a centre-back, then terrific, or vice versa. So if I've got centre-backs who can go into midfield and play like a midfield player, and are not afraid to keep going all the way into the final third, then that just gives more flexibility to the way you're going to play. So I like to see players with all-round ability. You now talk about, and we'll get into your work in the uh, football centre, but you talk about habits of a footballer. Is this something that you developed while you were working in the Australian Institute of Sport and seeing what sort of qualities players need to have to become those really high-quality Australian athletes? Um, I can tell you how the habits evolved. When I first went to work at the AOS in 1982, um, I was assistant coach, and assistant coaches were employed in the second year. In the first year, only head coaches were employed. And when I went there, I said to myself, I wonder what the kids will think because I'm a nobody. I'm not a household name, I haven't played for the national team, et cetera, et cetera. They're going to think, who's this bloke and what does he know? So my approach was if I could show you what the best players in the world do and they're all multi-millionaires and playing in World Cups, do you think that's a good starting point? And to a man, <laughs> everyone <laughs> said, absolutely. And so... The pressure was on me then to show them what good players did. And that was the early part of my 
what you might say performance analysis, identifying what good players do, but also not just what good players do, but what is effective play? What can I teach you that's actually going to help you become a much better player if I can convince you that this is worth doing? Because like the old saying, Stu, you can take a horse to the water, but you can't force it to drink. And out of my experiences of working with talented people, they don't all succeed. And that, in my opinion, is because some either don't want to change or adapt, and some don't have to because they've got the package. But there's a percentage of people who are pretty good and they have their good days and their bad days, but they're not consistent or they don't quite make a difference at the top level. Um, and there are some that try as hard as they can, just don't get it. Because some people seem to be unable to change their behavior. And so I, I very early on in the piece, I realized that we would win with a percentage. And I still, I stand by that today. What does that mean to win by a percentage? That there's going to be, so out of, out of 16 outfield players, there might be four that have kind of got the ability to modify and take information on board. And you see that in their performance. And you see that um, they've got the technical requirements, the mental um, aptitude. Uh, to con control their emotions and all this sort of stuff and uh, deal with adversity. Not that everyone experiences that in a short space of time, but you talk about it and you see some that have it. Um, and also the, the, the biggest reason why most players don't make the top grade is not because of their ability. It's because they cannot cope with the physical demands of the game at the elite level. So can you... Can you elaborate on that? Because uh, I guess that's important for some young kids aspiring to be uh, a professional athlete. What is the cost physically, emotionally, and mentally for an athlete to progress to the highest level? Well, the, the thing is, the physical side of, of football yeah, is something that you're born with, your genetics. You know, if you're a sprinter, then you're blessed with muscle fibre fast twitch from mum and dad. If you're an endurance athlete, you can run all day, but you're not the quickest, then you're not going to change. You can't turn an apple into an orange. Uh, you know, and I learned this after trying to improve physical capacities of certain players over a 10-year period, working with the best physiologists and strength and conditioning people in the country. And I always thought, you see, naively, that you could just keep training people and they will keep getting better. Well, that's not the case. Okay, there's a, there's a genetic limitation. And so what we started to profile were players, and this happened in the very early 90s, we started to realise that there were certain profiles of people and you could say this player from a physical standpoint can play at the elite level. This one, probably, because he's a good player, he'll get a contract, 
But if he stays at that level, I'll be surprised. My prediction will be he'll drop down a division. And it will take clubs a year to work out that he can't quite survive at the top level. And it will be because of physical qualities. Um, so, uh, and uh, I, I, just a little aside, in... 1993, I gave a presentation at a FIFA conference about um, player profiling and training methods. And back in the 80s, we were doing stuff at the Institute that the rest of the world started doing 25 years later. That was game-based training. Um, it's been brought in in Australia in recent years by the Dutch people that have come in because they just assumed that we're just a bunch of dummies in this country and we don't know what we're doing. So they're going to show us this new way of training and it's called game-based training. Well, we were doing all that in the mid-80s and proving that it works, testing and profiling people. Um, and so in that 93, after the Youth World Cup, I gave a presentation about that. And what I did was I, uh, the year before, I'd been helping Eddie Thompson with a preparation camp for the squad that went to Barcelona Olympics and played off for the bronze medal. And Eddie brought in 32 outfield players and three goalkeepers. Okay. And during that week, we put them through a battery of physical tests. Now, um, the players that were selected, okay, I knew. And so when I gave this presentation, I gave a presentation about speed over 20 metres, or 6, 12 and 20, VO2 score, your vertical jump and skin folds. I said those were the four profiles that we use. And I put all the results of all the 32 players, but I took their names off. And I said to the people, there were 33 coaches in the room, and I said, you tell me which ones you think got picked out of those, which 16 got picked, to go on a tour of Europe to get ready for the Barcelona Olympics. The worst person in the room picked 11 of the 16 that were selected without seeing anyone kick a ball, had no idea who they were. How did those figures seem to back up uh, the, the assumptions, I guess? The, for me, the, the, the fact is this. All 32 players were picked on their ability to play football. Okay, they were the best we had available so you'd say well they're all good players they can all play the game now it doesn't matter what your mentality is like if you can't compete physically you're not in the race you might have a great mentality but you can't survive physically okay now there may be some people that are really good physically but can't can't survive mentally they can't deal with the you know um the arousal control that might you know be a problem for a player but you can do something about that with a good sports psychologist. And, you know, we used to call that think training. You can control what you think about, um, but you can't change your muscle fibre. You can change an attitude. You can change your mentality. You can change how you react to being knocked over or kicked or fouled. You can jump up and down and wave your arms about and act like a Fruit Loop if you choose to, or you can just get up, make out like nothing's happened, and carry on playing like Mark Baduka did. You never saw Mark Baduka get angry or anything. And he used to get 
not from pillar to post, even though he was a big lad. So you see, all those things are within your control if you let them be. If you think about it and you control your emotions about how you're going to react. Now, we're talking at the elite level here, you know, and that's where the physical side becomes really important. And the, all the analysis of the games and so on suggests that there are more high-intensity efforts now in the game and often in bursts. So you have to be able to cope with those demands. Now, not every game is really high-intensity. And so sometimes it becomes a bit confusing for people because they look at, you know, games, international, Premier League and so on, and they go, well, they're not actually working that hard. You know, most of them are strolling about. They're playing the ball around the back and the other team's just shuffling sideways. But that doesn't mean to say that the game is not going to be at a really high tempo for 20 minutes in it. And that will kill some people. They won't be able to cope with 10 minutes of really high intensity effort. And so you've got to be able to survive those bits. And I've seen some games. I remember one game last year, uh, Spurs and Chelsea, I think it was. The game was frantic. It was one of the highest intensity games I'd seen on TV for weeks, years. And I thought to myself, how on earth are they going to sustain this level of intensity for 90 minutes? Well, they couldn't. After about 60, the game started. <laughs> but for 60 minutes, it was one of the most competitive, high-intensity games I think I've ever seen. So you've got to have the capacity. Now, if you can't cope with that, you fall by the wayside, the other score three goals, and then it's game over, and we'll all play at slow tempo now. So that's the reality. Um, but going back to that, that, you know, what I said about the, the performance side, if you know what you're looking for, um, then you can, in talent ID, particularly when you're dealing with lads over the age of 16, then you can start to, to look at players. And I'll give you an example. Now, Josip Simonic, he went for a trial at Ajax when he was with me at the AIS. At 17 years of age, they knocked him back. They said, oh, he hasn't got the right personality. Now, they used to have a thing, and I think they still do at Ajax. It's called their tips. They call it talent, um, insight, personality. It might be speed. I'm not sure what it is, but it's a little acronym. And they said, no, he hadn't got personality. And when Joe came back, I said, well, I'll, I said, I'll be honest with you, Joe. I'm really surprised that Ajax didn't sign you. I said, because um, and the, the feedback that we got was that they thought technically he was excellent and so on. But they put it down to personality. Now, I said to Joe, well, probably what they saw was this gangly six foot three stick insect running around the field. And they probably thought, no, nah, he's not serious because he's, he's not doing things at high tempo and so on. Now, Joe had a pretty poor VO2 score. So his aerobic capacity. So his ability to get up and down the field wasn't good. Wasn't up to our benchmark. And we trained him for three years to see if we could improve his aerobic capacity. So in the end, I said to Joe, who was a number 10, brilliant goal scorer, okay, didn't know what panic meant, would nutmeg people in the penalty area and then score. Um, I said to him, how about you play as a centre-back? And he went, what? <laughs> I said, yeah. I said, if you want to play as a pro, 
said, you've got all the skill under the sun. You're the most two-footed player I've ever seen. You're going to be probably six foot five by the time you're finished. You're lightning quick and you'll get the most recoveries playing as a centre-back. So him and his dad said to me, well, we've trusted your judgment so far. <laughs> we'll give it a go. And I said to Joe, we need to teach you about defending a little bit more and taking risks and that sort of stuff to get you ready to go into senior football. So that's what we did. Now he went on. He broke his fifth metatarsal five times in four years, played nine games in four years, didn't know if he would ever play football at a professional level. But in the end, a doctor in Melbourne put a metal sheath around his bone and he could play football. And he started playing seriously when he was probably 20 or 21. Okay, and then he went on to have played 105 games for Croatia played in two World Cups, European Championships, and was eventually their captain. Now, if I'd left him as a number 10 or a midfield player, he might have played, well, he would have definitely played in the NSL, but if he, I don't think he would have had a career in Europe where the intensity of the game would have been much higher. So, again, what, what you learn from these things, and I'm not talking here about, and I, I don't, talk about this stuff very often, Stu, because people, I've heard reports of people testing 11-year-olds and saying, oh, you'll never make a player, which is absolutely ridiculous. And it proves the old saying that a little bit of knowledge is dangerous. It sounds to me like what you're saying is that once you've got an elite squad and they've been tested from a range of different perspectives, including mentality, so you had a squad of really high-quality 32 players and it's that the physicality and the recovery ability the ability to recover that makes makes the difference is that a fair assumption well not so much recovery techniques you can apply to anybody it's it's the raw material what's your technical ability like what's your ability to make decisions like okay so people always talk about our oh, decision makers you know um Everybody's a decision maker in a game. It just depends how many good ones you make as opposed to poor ones. How good are you technically? You can make a good decision to do something, but then you fail because you can't execute it. But your decision was good. And that's why sometimes you hear people, you know, coaches say to players, listen, that was, yeah, it was almost there. You know, it was a great decision, but, you know, the ball wasn't quite the delivery that you need. <laughs> Or whatever, you know, so it's that all comes into the mix. How do you react, you know, sort of like to changes in strategy? So I'm a believer, you see, that you have to teach players to think for themselves. That's a slightly different approach to teaching people how to play systems. We've got Martin in the waiting room, so I'm going to add him now. Can we continue this part of it on? Because I do still want to talk about talent ID and, and, and a little bit more, but I'll add Martin in if that's okay. No problem. Martin, you are the Zone Development Officer for Football Brisbane, and I understand you had a few questions for uh, Ron. Yes. Where do we begin, Ron? <laughs> Wherever you like, Martin. <laughs> the National Technical Director, um, obviously you've got so much experience in the game. Is that a job that 
you've ever gone for, you've ever applied for? Is there a reason why you have or haven't had the job? And what, and if if not you today, who else could step in and do that job properly today? <laughs> um, uh, well, thanks for the compliment, Martin. I um, I actually had the job back in 2004. Yep. And after two years of working at the FFI, um, I left because basically I was bored because I couldn't do anything. Right. We didn't have any resources and I, I wasn't given a lot of autonomy, so to speak, because the game was in such a mess. And um, I, I also, at that time, and I'll say this, I've, I'm the sort of person who thrived in the AIS environment because I was given a task and then left to get on and do it. Yeah. And so um, I look back and um, I've never had a job that hasn't been 24-7. And my wife says that's because you turn every job into a 24-7 because of the person you are. Um, and so I've never taken a part-time job <laughs> because that will become a 24-7 as well. Um, but, in, you know, my, my mentality is I'm a doer. I, liked, I like to be fully engaged in things and I like to think I've, I've got a bit of creativity in me as well. Yeah. I'm always looking to try and do things a little bit better this year than last year or, you know, whether it's improving how you're going to practice. And I've had a lot of time to think about that in recent years. Yeah. And I've, I've made a lot of changes to the way I do things now compared to how I did them years ago. What is the biggest challenge that the National Technical Director will face as they come into the role? Ah. Uh, well, it depends what your view is and what your knowledge is like. Um, so that will, you know, I mean, Rob Sherman came into the job for six months and Rob had a, um, because I spoke to him and he invited me into a panel to look at the academy system in Australia and how we could try and improve it to improve the quality of players that would be coming out of said academies and so on but he had a fairly fixed mindset about how we're going to do it and his view was that well if people don't want it then okay so be it i'll ride off into the night and so that's what he did now the, he made all sorts of other suggestions about governance and stuff like that which weren't new and a lot of people agree with and so on um but that's not in my sphere of expertise I would say my background has been in coaching players coaching coaches um, at all levels of the game I've worked you know, recently I've, I've, I've been back working with 12 year olds and so on I'm currently in my third year of working with the TSP group in Canberra with 15 year olds but I've I've worked with international players youth international players. I've coached in professional football here and overseas at senior level. Um, and uh, so I've got a broad background to draw on over a period of 
you know, best part of 40 years I've been involved in the game. I've also evolved with it. Um, I'm, I'm a believer in keeping up the technology. I, I still, to this day, do lots and lots of analysis of, of the game. I did a research PhD that took me five years and finished that in 2016. So I'm, I'm what I'd call a student of the game. Um, and so I, I keep looking at football, not through the eyes of someone who thinks he's got the answer for everything, but through the eyes of how do we actually keep making progress? What are the biggest challenges? We've now reached the end of part one of our interview with Ron Smith. In part two, Ron will speak to a young 15-year-old footballer about some of his dreams and aspirations. We'll also speak about the Nike Football Academy, Tom Rogick, and the work that Ron is doing in the Football Centre. So stay tuned for part two. Thanks for joining us on the Future Champions podcast. <laughs>